Welcome to the Shambhala Publications Podcast. In this episode, part of a series of discussions on Jamgun Control's Treasury of Precious Instructions, translator Sarah Harding presents the related traditions of Shije, or pacification, and should. We hope you enjoy it. Hmm. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so you can see I came without notes or books or anything this time because I feel like I'm a sort of immersed and nearly drowning in Shije and Chut. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to start with Shije because that is chronologically earlier and also as I ex- explained one time, one of these like now seems like, you know, nearly dozens of evenings of speaking that um, <clears throat> Chur is considered a branch of Shije because of Jong-un Control's, um, you know, scheme of, or schema of like having all of the chariot, you know, all of the chariots go back to one charioteer who either came from India or went to India and received teachings. <clears throat> so in this case, it's somebody named Dampa Sangye, uh, or you might know him by the name Pa Dampa Sangye, which just means father, which is a, the story of how he got his name father is found in, actually found in the um, biography of Machi, you know, mother, because not because of anything going on between them, but because uh, her son, <clears throat> Machik's son, uh, who became one of the lineage holders of Chut, regarded him as a father. So that's where that comes from. And so I, all of the texts always call him just Dampa. So I have, you know, trying to, that's one of those things that, you know, that will irritate people because I'm changing it from calling him Pa Dampa. But I'm just translating. Hey, I'm just the translator. And um, so he was, he's a fascinating person that we don't know enough about and that hasn't really come up enough. And also, I mean, it, usually people have heard of him in context of church <clears throat> and don't ever pay any attention to, an in, well, really, five cycles of really interesting teachings that came out of India that he brought to Tibet. Um, and... Among all of those teachings so far, and I'm like halfway through, I've finished like a lot, I've done a lot already on Shiji, although I'm not finished with it. Um, I, I haven't even found one instruction on Chut. So it's kind of interesting that he's known for Chut when he didn't teach it. But it I'm going to be in a lot of trouble for saying that. Um, so, but he is responsible. There hasn't been that much research on him or this tradition me here in Boulder and Dan Martin in Jerusalem, we're the two like only doing research in Shije, uh, except for Curtis Schaefer did a, a sum in his book on Saraha, so that's the only ones, that's the only thing I can recommend. And his investigation was of the Dohas, um, you know, all the collection of songs of the Mahasiddhas of India that are in the Tenjur, those are all, almost all brought by Dampa Sangye, by Padampa Sangye. Uh, I'm not sure people recognize that for a while because his Indian name was either Kamala Shri or Kamala something else. Now I can't remember what it was. And so they confuse him with the Kamala Shri that was, did the Samuiling debate that was the student of Shantarakshita. Um, so that's really confusing. And the way the Tibetans have dealt with that in their history writing of history 
is basically to say he was Kamala Sheila and also he was Dambasange and then when he was in China he was called, he was Bodhidharma, which gives him a lifespan of something like 520 years. And that's not a problem in the Tibetan worldview. Um, I don't think he was Kamala Sheila. The teachings he gave had not, have bear no resemblance to either of those people, Bodhidharma or Kamala Sheila. So, um, you know, I kind of, I have my doubts. But, um, so what did he do? He, uh, and also another name confusion is that, um, and here's the connection with Machik and Chur. I mean, I would have talked about that later, but one of the source texts of Chur is by somebody um, called Arya Deva, which of course can be confusing with the principal student of Nagarjuna. But this Arya Deva, who's a Brahmin, so he's called Arya Deva the Brahmin, to distinguish him was the maternal uncle of Dampasange. So there's a connection there. However, in that source text for Chirut, there's no discussion of Chirut either, so that's also very interesting. But um, my contention, actually, to tell you the truth, is that the source of both of these lineages of Chirut and Shije is a Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom. That's the main thing that's being transmitted in the core. But Dampa went to, you know, came from India, and, and there's a, a number of, a variety of how many times he came to Tibet. Uh, it varies between three, five, and seven, and I'm not going to try and know which those are, um, but there is specific history of which places he went to in Tibet along the border. So, you, you know, so, and in those, he left teachings each time with disciples. Um, and... Um, but there's three main, three main transmissions. So I tend to go with three as a real possibility of how many times he went to Tibet. And they're called the first, the middle, and the last transmission or kabap. And uh, in the second one, there's, it's divided into three that are quite different. So that's why I'm saying five transmissions. And in the first transmission, it was given to um, his... Transmission comes down through a Kashmiri master, um, and some people hold that he actually didn't uh, give that, some people meaning Dan Martin, because he's the only other person, um, uh, think that he actually bestowed those teachings not in Tibet, but in Kashmir. So I don't know, I haven't found, I haven't been able to pinpoint that. And those teachings, uh, are very interesting. Well, maybe I'll keep the kind of substance. Uh, well, no. Okay, so those teachings are very... The interesting thing about them, all of his teachings are very tantric in nature, and uh, I have a really, really strong sense of very Indian. And uh, most, practices, most practices in Tibet, you know, have become very Tibetan. And um, I'll talk about this more when I finish, but... Um, and it may be the reason why Shije is not practiced anymore. And um, some of the elder masters like Trang Rinpoche, when I've asked, they said, no, nobody practices them at all, um, the Shije practices. Some, there's, um, there's a lama in uh, Oregon who says he's the 
you know who he is. I mean, I have no reason to doubt him. You know, the, the holder of the lineage of Shije, but he mainly practices and teaches Chut. And then Professor Padmaso, right there, says that there's some guy in China in Beijing who uh, claims to be teaching and practicing Shije because of finding books, right? Not because of any lineage, but yeah. So, but I don't know really, I don't know anything about those people. Uh, well, I mean, I do. I did meet Lama Wangdu, and he's a, he's a classic Chirpa. I have no reason, but I don't think he's teaching what I identify now as Shije, and most people just don't know about it. And thus, it's quite hard to you know, say what the practices are because no one has practiced them for a long time. And just in, in terms of Kongtol and preserving them, Kongtol gives all credit to uh, Minling Dharma Shri, uh, who was a great master and translator um, from Minling, the Nyingma Monastery of Mindraling. And, um, and I've been finding that most of the texts are by him. So we, you know, there's somebody who did this saving of it and then Kongtol preserving Minderlings and whatever was left of the original teachings. And the things that Dampa actually said that looks like he might have actually said them, those are cryptic beyond belief. I mean, I, I don't even know what to, how to, you know, the one that's been published that you might have seen is the advice to the people of Dingri, um, which is either 80, it's either called the 80 or the 100, and but in the 80, there's 98, so I actually think it's a spelling mistake. Because <laughs> I can't believe that he did it twice, giving almost identical teachings, one with 98 and one with 100. So that's, anyway, that's what happens with Tibetan. Anyway, so in that first transmission, back to that first one, one of the, just one of the, in, of passing interest, I suppose, is that he teaches the five paths, which sounds like the five, Lam Nga, you know, the five Mahayana paths, and they have the same name, path of accumulation, you know, path of application, and so forth. But they're in t totally different and, and presented in a way that's more like, um, <clears throat> well, for instance, like the path of seeing is presented as a post-meditation practice. And so it's more like a, an individual could practice all these five in their kind of career as a practitioner, rather than that, you know, 2,000 lifetimes from now, you might reach to the path of seeing. So it's a completely different approach, um, really surprisingly. And I asked our expert of, you know, paths and boomies, Carl Moonhotzel, and I showed him briefly, you know, the thing, and he said, no, nothing like that in the classic Mahayana explanation of the five paths. So it's that's interesting. I hope I find out more about that. Then the second or middle transmission was has three different parts: Ma, So, and Kam, based on the places where the three principal receivers, recipients of those lineages, um, received that uh, came from. And the first two of them are really fascinating. There's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of yogic practice, what we were calling yogic practices, you know, exercises, and particularly uh, Dampa seemed to be very, very um, uh, fond, I guess you could say, of this thing called yogic gazes, tatang, uh, karana, 
in Sanskrit. And um, uh, as a way of controlling the subtle winds and the subtle body, he used the gazes. There are descriptions of positions, physical positions, but much more on the gazes. Um, and not only, I mean, he has, there's various lists of them that are quite interesting, um, you know, like the gaze like a tortoise and the gaze where your eyes look like kidneys and the gaze where you're, you know, various like far out things. And also in that, in one of those middle uh, transmissions, um, there's this interesting kinds of exercises you do with awareness. They have names like spinning like a wheel, opening like a lotus, um, throwing like a spear, and those are all things you do with awareness. You know, you spin it around, or you throw it into space, or you, you know, so it's a shame really that these practices have kind of lost, um, lost their lineage in a way. Not, uh, the reading lineage is still present, um, so they're not totally gone, but you know, there doesn't seem to be someone practicing them that could actually explain what you really do. And um, as I'm reading them, that I also, it's strange, you know, I have no, I have no kind of sense of the actual practice, even though I can, the descriptions are very specific. So it's funny. The third of those three middle ones um, has been lost, mostly except for the sort of preliminary practices and control makes a makes a comment that nowadays what's left of it which is classic preliminary practices is applied to nowadays being 19th century um, applied to the other two so they do that as preliminary and and then the others or at least he says he thinks that's what happened and then the final kabap the final one is uh, to a and consider the principal one and the one that's really had the biggest impact uh, is to his disciple called uh, Jangchu Sempa Kunga or Bodhisattva Kunga. And there's a lot of material around uh, within that, within his transmission to Kunga, there's a, a, a black instruction, a red instruction, and a white instruction. They always mention them. And then they always say, well, we're just going to talk about the red instruction. So I have a lot of detail on that. Uh, even though my really interest was on the black instruction, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But um, the red instruction is very, very thorough. It goes through, you know, people of the highest capacity. Like we've talked about Lam Rim, how that began, this whole idea of different capacities of people. So just in that same vein, this goes through uh, how to approach recognizing your own true nature or pure awareness. Uh, depending on what kind of person you are. And it's very, very detailed. You know, it's a, it's a, it, this commentary is probably 60, 70 pages, and, and there's other ones, too, that still exist. Um, but what got me interested, and there's a paper up on the Sadra blog, by the way, you guys should all look up the Sadra blog, and Marcus puts up things that are interesting all the time, but was that when we went to Nepal to receive the empowerments of the whole Damnakzu from um, Sanjay Nyempa Rinpoche, I didn't go for the whole one. I only lasted a week for the Shije to receive the empowerments and, and oral transmission and teachings. It was, a, it was a masterful job that he did, I have to say. Um, 
you know, when I was talking before about how Quantrill's collections have turned into this, when they're transmitted all at once, it turns into this, um, you know, huge festival where people come and they're packed in. And but the Benson Gompa, the mon- I mean, I've never actually ever witnessed someone do such a good job because he had everything totally prepared. The monks had the, what you had to chant was up on two screens before you, you know, by the time it it was ready to go, it was up there. You didn't have to be looking through pages and 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 just for anyone to know how to do all these empowerments in the Dhammatsu is phenomenal. And I, I, I have to say that another side result of Kongtrul's kinds of collections is this really, you know, giving the lamas a really hard job. I mean, that's, they really have to earn their keep when they do something like this. So anyway, one of the surprising things that I found in the empowerments of Shije is the use of the Sanskrit alphabet, which was the primary thing in the empowerments. And it wasn't just that you said it once. <laughs> you said, I mean, it was re- you had to repeat the whole Sanskrit alphabet dozens of times and then repeat it backwards and then repeat, if you know Sanskrit or even Tibetan, you know that you know, there's sort of rows and columns if you lay it out. Repeat the columns, repeat them going this way, repeat every fourth letter, go backwards, forward. You know, it was just like, and I was just, what is this? I have never, I've been around a while and, you know, old enough to have been around a while. Certainly we are practicing what they call secret mantra, so it shouldn't be surprising that there's mantras there. But these aren't mantras. This is an alphabet and what I came in my paper just so I started smart, you know, sounded smart, is to call it non-lexical phonemes, you know, like sounds that are have no meaning. Mantras tend to have some kind of meaning. These are just syllables. And it's a f- actually very, very fascinating. So I tried to investigate where did this come from. And, and the two sources that are listed for uh, Shijie are two tantras, and one of them is called... Um, Ali Kali Sangwa Samchimi Chapa Chuwo And the other one, which means something like the Ali Kali is the word for the Sanskrit alphabet. The A is the, are the, are the vowels, and Ka are the consonants. So Ali Kali means the Sanskrit alphabet in this case, and then it's the great river, the great unimaginable river tantra of the Sanskrit alphabet, something like that. And then there's another one was, that was just called the Symbol Tantra. And about, I don't know, like half of the things attributed to Dampa have the word syllable in it. And I got it wrong in the Treasury of Knowledge. I just assumed it was, you know, his symbol teachings. But this time, uh, I found it quoted so I could look up those quotes. And in fact, the quotes don't come from any of those that are collected there. Then, you know, I, here's like if I was in academia, I would be like, totally bragging, so I'm bragging now. (laughs) I believe I found, I did find the quote, and I found the source, uh, Tantra. And it was in the 100, and I got this number wrong, the 139 volumes of Bodong Chokle Namgyal's collection of texts, which have been collected, by the way, in a book called the Encyclopedica Tibetica. and ha- as I mentioned, haven't really been investigated very far so far. The- anyway, so he has treasures. You know, there's like treasures hidden in there because he just thinks. So I, I managed to find it and translate it, 
not well, but good enough for my uses to write this paper and investigate it. Now, both of these tantras are probably written by Dampa Sanjay. That's what the belief is. And, you know, we were talking about the battle over what was what's so-called authentic and what's not. And this is a, a good example. But, you know, at least he's Indian. <laughs> um, but there is no Sanskrit that we can find so um, that I know of. There may be somewhere. Who knows? So how? So these two tantras, also in the Dangakzer, the one Alikali tantra that I'm going to call it for short, um, is in there. And every and I also some scholars have made a mistake thinking that's the tantra, but it's actually only three chapters out of 24. And uh, it's an easy mistake to make in Tibetan where you say something like you know the Nishujipa. And it sounds like it's saying the 24th chapter, but it's actually number 10 out of 24. Um, and and the person who decided to include those three, only three chapters, was Jamyon Kensei Wangpo. And how interesting what he chose, I mean, to me, because I'm so nerdy, you know, I'm like nerdy about these sources of things. Um, uh, he chose the instructions on... Um, you know, empowerment, one chapter on empowerment, one chapter on the actual practice, and one chapter on the results. And he left out all the really interesting stuff about about sounds and syllables and mantras. He didn't put those in, but that the whole rest of the time, I mean, put there's a little bit in there because actually I don't think he could have found one chapter that didn't have a few hints about that. But the, these two, and, and they're very corrupted, especially the other one I found in Bodong, um, so many mistakes. The, 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 the mantras are a disaster, you know, kind of a disaster, and they're not the same as in the other one, and so on. Um, but it's all about the power of sound, and the power where obviously mantra practice comes from, the power of mantra. The ma- I'm going to say magical, but the like... Un, you know the the kind of power from an oral tradition that seems to reach back even into the times of the first you know the first pre-written language where language itself was a miracle you know the language the fact that humans developed sound meanings was an incredible thing it seems to reach um, that far back and this totally in keeping with Vedic uh, Vedic ritual and the Vedas, where, in fact, Vedic means a, la- means a language, so, and ritual. So ritual's done with language. Anyway, I didn't get that far because it's way too late in my life to become a master of the Vedas, you know. Um, and But I did find a lot of sources in Mahayana texts that have dharani in them which is a kind of a, it's a kind of a, it's like a long mantra. Um, mantra itself usually is like the deity's name and, you know, something like put in there like Omanapemi Hung or something was really the name of Avalokiteshvara, things like that. But in the Dharani are longer and appeared in very, very early in Mahayana sutras. So I didn't even have to go... And then, of course, it was obvious I could find some sources in tantras, but I didn't even really have to go there because there's enough in in the Mahayana uh, tantras to give a hint at what's going on here. There are these alphabets. Um, um, 
but and how how did I know to look in that was a mere mention in the blue annals where there's a discussion of whether Dampa Sange's teachings are are they tantric or are they Mahayanist? You know, are, which one does it go to? And and the writer Gurlot Sauer, the writer of the uh, Blue Annals, says they don't have to be tantric because, for instance, there's the 42 syllables in the Prajnaparamita. That's all it says. 42 syllables in the first, and they're like, what does that mean? And I actually typed it into Google, you know, 42 syllables, I got it. It's, uh, you know, yay Google. So in the, I think the Perfection of Wisdom in 25,000 lines, uh, there's the 42 syllables, which is uh, a, a, an alphabet, I can't remember the name of the language that it's in, but they tend to call it Arapachana, which it might sound familiar to you from the Manjushri mantra, which the Tibetans pronounced as Arapachana, the, there's no D in it, and, and Ara, Arapachana, five syllables, are the first five syllables of a, Gan, a Gandharan alphabet, uh, and there it was in the Prajnaparamita, and it had all these teachings on each syllable meaning, um, a, you know, some description of an indescribable kind of dharmakaya state. And, um, and then I found more in other uh, in other Mahayana texts that have um, the Sanskrit alphabet in the same mode. And one that you can readily access is um, the Lalita Vitara, the the, you know, the play of the Buddha, which is basically the Buddha's life. There's been several translations of it, one by the Nyingma, Nyingmapa Institute, uh, Tartangtuku people, although that one is translated from French, from Sanskrit, from I don't even know what language. But um, anyway, there's a better one online that 84,000 has done now. And I, I, I just like to tell this story um, from there. Um, because this is even maybe an example of it being used as a mnemonic device to remind you uh, of the teachings. Because in the Vedic, I found out later, in the Vedic, um, in the Vedic tradition, you never write something down. In fact, in, I even found some mentions in some of the materials of Dampa of Shije that, you know, it's the worst degeneration of the teachings of the Dharma when it gets written down. Like it's basically ruined if you write it down. And remember we were talking about Lamdre that was like at least eight generations before it was written down and things. That's another example of this tradition where you can still feel the Indian tradition coming into teachings that happened in uh, Tibet. So anyway, the, the story from the Buddha's life is his first day of school. So if you're a parent, it's kind of like cute. So he goes to school, the Buddha, you know, goes to school and um, and his, it's a well, here's why it's well known, this one is because they ask him uh, to, to recite the alphabet. The, the, the school teacher asks him to recite the alphabet and he goes, well, which alphabet would you like? And he names, um, is it 62 different alphabets? Something, I can't remember the exact number, but like this tremendous long 
number of different languages in India. As you know, there's something like 320 languages in India. So he named 62, and that is one of the one source that scholars can go back and see what languages were present at the time is in that very story because he actually names them all. <laughs> so that's kind of like if I were the school teacher, I'd be like, uh-oh, I'm going to have trouble with this student. So then um, the, the teacher wants to start teaching, <clears throat> and he's going to teach the Sanskrit alphabet. Yeah, it's the Sanskrit alphabet in that one. You know, so he starts, you know, ka, ka, ga, ga. Uh, you know, like that. And, and, but instead, the Buddha, through his powers, uh, instead of those syllables coming out of the school teacher's mouth, instead comes out the actual, like, you know, ka stands for, you know, the true nature of the Dharmakaya, which is unthinkable and unimaginable. You know, like this whole sentence of an amazing non-dual kind of teaching of the ultimate state, and each that happens in each of them, and and the the term in Sanskrit that comes out from the one first syllable is always the same, and you know I compared it to you know A is for apple, B is for whatever's next, baby, C is for cat. You know we do that too. We have that tradition. So anyway, I just like that story because it's cute, and that's what happens, and that's apparently. One of the uses that happened originally with these sounds were that they were just reminders so that you could remember all the teachings without writing them down because you could say the alphabet. And then at some point, and particularly in the tantras, in various tantras, that mnemonic usage kind of disappeared and the power of individual language, um, individual sounds was just emphasized. It's like... And, and we, there's a few, very few leftovers in Tibetan of that kind of thing, like pe, you know, doesn't mean anything, although they'll say pa is this and ta is that, and if you put them together, pet means the whole thing. But, the, you know, where the, a sound which doesn't have a lexical meaning actually has a great deal of inherent power, you know, in it. And, that, and, that's, and I believe that that whole theory, and I've long thought this, this has been something I've suspected for a long, long time, and I've asked a couple of lamas about it, that I think that has been pretty much lost in, in the transfer uh, from Vedic religion into Tibet, and in, in even the tantric transfer. And one reason I think that that may have happened is because if there's so much power in these exact syllables, uh, and, and you're Tibetan and you can't, pronounce it correctly, you can't write it correctly, you can't pronounce it correctly, and you really don't know how it was supposed to be pronounced, you feel kind of, you know, it's kind of depressing, right? You kind of think, well, if all the power is in just a sound and I can't say the sound, it's kind of hard to keep that going over centuries and centuries. It's a, it's, a, it's a knowledge that has gotten lost, and I've seen, I think, two references to that loss in Tibetan literature that I can't remember anymore, and I was quite surprised. He said, this is what they used to do, but we don't do it anymore because blah, blah, blah. And I believe it was Control that said that. Anyway, I got as far as I could with that. I have a, I, I'm still fascinated now by the Vedas and the usage of, uh, of whatever happened. Um, but I am suspecting, even with 
Jamyoung Kense Wangpo's choices of which chapters to put in that he left out all that stuff because it just became an irrelevant practice for Tibetans. You know, this is not what they're practicing. They're practicing mantra that has some meaning rather than just sound that has no meaning. You know, so most of the mantras. But it certainly gives you a hint at what once was and why in Tibetan literature they almost never use a term like Vajrayana. They always call it secret mantra. Um, it's about mantra, you know. The Vajrayana is about was once about the power of sound, I believe, and ritual, sound and ritual, those two things, which might not be what you thought you were practicing. So that's, I think, all I have to say about Shije. Uh, and there's so much more to learn. It's very interesting to be doing a. Um, a lineage of teachings that does, basically doesn't exist anymore and that nobody knows anything about except for Dan Martin in Jerusalem. But, um, and he's great. He's a great resource. So so in the histories, the way, way later histories of what Dampa did, you can find a mention of Chut in the middle transmission, in one of the three of the middle transmission. It says, you know, and Dampa passed on the teachings of yada, 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 and Chur too. And then it names Sunam Lama, who is the teacher of Machik, names Machik often, and a couple of other people, two, three, four, five people, maybe about five people who he passed those on to. That's all that we have so far that I found. That's that, that little thin thing right there is the presence of Machig. However, in the literature on Chur, of course, you find quite a few stories about Machig's encounters with Dampa Sangye. Um, but but they're, very, they're not many, and actually it was her teacher, who's called Sunam Lama, who received mostly teachings from Dampa Sangye as well as others. So the, there's, a, there's someone in between. It's actually a second generation, although she did apparently meet Dampa Sangye, on an, especially on one occasion. Um, so that's a whole thing, and I'm sure that's what you mostly came to hear about, and it's a, a very, very complicated lineage. Um, um, one of the reasons that or one of the things that makes it difficult to study is that it doesn't it doesn't have its own monastic establishment at all. And what happened in the history of Tibet after it was developed by Machik, you know, in the 1100s probably, is it got, everybody had a piece of it. And it now exists in almost all the other schools of Tibetan Buddhism, um, and in one form or another. Uh, and also an incredible... Uh, proliferation of lineages, you know, there's like, I can't even sort that one out, I didn't even try, and an incredible proliferation of texts, unbelievable, more than I think any other subject. Everybody wrote their own church text. Um, however, everybody also plagiarized from what seemed to be some original prayers, um, and so it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of hard to work with that in that sense. But it was certainly a remarkable, remarkable tradition. Machik was an amazing person. Of course, as you know, you know she's given a status as high as any of the masters of Tibet um, and a special place of pride, I think, for Tibetans because of the 
you know, because of the legend, if it's true or not, we don't know, that the Chut practices are the only practices that were then taken back into India, so that it was a reverse direction. You know, all the practices come from India into Tibet, but Chut went from Tibet into India. Um, and you can see little hints about that, you know, the story of her life. There's about two or three or four available biographies now, of course, written hundreds of years later. We don't know what happened, but um, a couple of things about her that I was able to glean from it was that, uh, first of all, um, she was like an incredible reader, reciter, uh, and that got her a job. You know, women d didn't really have an easy time getting a job as, a, as a, an ecclesiastic, you know, as a, like, local lama or something. But because she was so good, meaning fast, meaning because of this tradition in Tibet of having, um, you know, lamas come into your home and read sutras and read texts, which is about the only time that they're read. People don't read them for the meaning; it's for blessing of the house, of the you know, of the crops, of the everything. So um, people get invited in, and this still I don't know, and I haven't lived in Tibet, but certainly in Bhutan, this is uh, you. All, every single household is virtually required twice a year, spring and fall, to have this you know, puja happen in your house where you feed the monks and you sing and they read. And then you go around preparing food for them while they're reading and that's a blessing. And she was hired as this, as we call like a chaplain or something, and she uh, read it. And there's a, some special kind of magic thing where I asked Trangrimshay a lot about, where she, which is called drukdur, which is, means times six. And what he explained, and he said he's seen it done, is in, but not with six, it's usually more like with three or two, is that somebody can read so fast that uh, they have someone else following along who can only follow every second or third or fourth line, but, but that somehow they all get out there. So they need all these other people to check on this one person to see if they're really doing that. So the legend has it that Machi could do six lines in the time that a normal person could do one. Um, and... And when you see it explained in texts, what that really, what they say that that is, is she's actually reading six at the same time, six lines at the same time. And so she got that job, and something happened very interesting with her is that all of a sudden she thought about the meaning of the, of the perfection of wisdom. Like, instead of just trying to read it really fast, she was like, oh, this is something. And, um, hmm, what does this mean? And particularly, it will always say in all the histories that it was during the chapter on Mara, on the devil. I call it the devil or the devils. And that's, I can explain my use of that term for that Sanskrit term. It's not the same term in Tibetan that I translate as demon, which is dre. You know, dude, dude is, a, is a whole other thing with a very big meaning. Um, but anyway, the problem is when you actually look in the perfection of wisdom teachings, there's a lot on this Mara. It's not really clear which chapter that was and which thing. So I found and put in the book about four choices of which, you know, I just kind of wanted to know, well, which words were was it that 
totally inspired her to have this epiphany of the real true meaning of perfection of wisdom. But anyway, whatever it was, it happened, and it's interesting that it was in, a, in the part on this idea of a spiritual devil, you know, a, sp a, a spiritual death, because Mara comes from the word to die in Sanskrit. I'm going to... But anyway, because uh, <laughs> it didn't have like I, you know, there's no vowel there, it's just So Mara, so it, I kind of like to think of it having had children growing up as whatever this is, you know, the millennials or something that, you know, who were very much, both of my kids are, you know, on the dark side and always inviting me in. Um, you know, with like skeletons and vampires and everything, goth. and So there is something about the dark side. There was something about the negative side of the, you know, of the enlightened, you know, there's always the shadow of enlightenment. If you have light, you have dark. And that's personified as Mara, as the one who was the tempter of the Buddha, you know, just like, you know, who with his tent. But anyway, um, so that's one stream of her realization coming from the Prajna Paramita. Uh, then there was encounters with Tara, this also, you know, amazing kind of feminine archetype imagery of Tara that who spoke directly to her, uh, and um, also manifesting. Well, then that, that makes the Tara connection made a connection with the, the so-called Great Mother Yum Chenmo, who is the personification of Prajnaparamita again, and in fact called in Sanskrit Prajnaparamita Prajnaparamita. It's different in Sanskrit. It's, the Tibetans call it Prajnaparamita Ma. They just put it on, which Kansa translates as the lovely, which I love. It's so cute. But anyway. Um, and and then there's the teachings that came from Arya Deva the Brahmin, which are traced sort of traced to Padampa Sangye. So those are her three kind of streams coming into her then <clears throat> creation of this whole practice lineage. Basically, it looks like she, you know, it came from her. There's no. Uh, it is sort of a self-created lineage, which is always a little dubious in Tibet when you make up your own stuff. You know, that's kind of, um, you have to at least have a lot of visions. I guess she had Tara to fall back on. And and in my, as someone, I've been accused of having a feminist agenda in my translation, at least in my, I don't have it in the translation, but maybe in the introduction. Um, but I think it became very important to associate her with Dampasange because, first of all, he's male, and secondly, he's Indian, and it gives her a kind of validity, unfortunately, that that was needed for her to go ahead. And that whole thing is symbolized in a story uh, that's told many times of uh, these Indian siddhas, or no, they're Indian panditas, scholars in three Indians, who hear about her, they're in India at maybe Nalanda or one of the universities, and they hear, who is this witch? You know, Who is this um, outrageous, crazy woman who's teaching Dharma? She must be a demoness. So we're going to go check her out. And, and this story is told in all of the biographies. And they go, 
by swift foot, so they're obviously very accomplished. They they can do that, you know, just like in Carlos Castaneda's, the Tibetans had that too. You can do quick swift walking and get to Tibet in a couple in, in a day or something. So they go to check her out and, and then they get there and then <clears throat> she says, um, they say, prove, you know, give us the teachings. We want to hear what you're teaching. And she says, well, what language would you like it in? And this is a woman that never left Tibet. She maybe never even left her area of southern, southwest Tibet. And how does she know Indian languages? Well, of course, in the Tibetan stories, it's because in the last life she was an Indian Siddha. And there's, that story is always the story that begins her, her biographies. Um, and she was a man. But uh, so she ends up, so then there's a huge gathering. It says from all over Tibet, come and Sang and Amdo, and everybody comes from all over the place. And she gives, she proceeds to give um, teachings in, in an Indian dialect, in Sanskrit, not Sanskrit, but in some, uh, you know, used dialect. And then, um, then they're convinced that it, she is authentic after all that. And, and uh, those teachings are supposedly contained in something which is called Katsom Chenmo, which I've translated as the great bundle. Um, but the important word there is ka, and I think that is very um, you know, thought out because ka is, refers to Buddha word. So it's a message that these are Buddha, this is Buddha word. She is not just making stuff up. You know, this is really ka, this is really vachana, this word. So those are, uh, you know, translated those, they're hard. And there's been some commentaries. Um, it's very hard to see the original sources, but the sources that Kongtrol put in, and I also wrote a whole paper about that that's up on the Tzadra blog called Did Machik Really Teach Chur? This is something that I get like people hate me for. But the the at least the source text that Kongtrol chose in his Damgak Zur to put as the source texts don't readily reveal anything about what we call Chur now. But what could have been the original Chur, there's quite a bit. And there's a lot about, you know, demonic or negative forces, still something that was important. You know, how do you deal with the negative? How do you deal with the dark side of your own practice, of your spiritual death, of your, um, you know, all these things that are possible? There is quite a bit of that in a recognizable form. But the the practice of donating your body, you know, the, the whole thing which is um, connected with Chirut now, of the visualizations of chopping up your body and giving them to, you know, calling on the demons and giving them is not there in the source texts that I could identify as truly being source texts. They are in the commentaries. So a couple of the early commentators, one called Jamyang Gumpo, and then another one, the third Karmapa Rangjung Dorje, <clears throat> that whole, that whole, what became to practice starts to be fleshed out and developed in a lot of detail. And as you may know, there's really a lot of detail. Um, but Kongtrol points out, and many other teachers too, Kongtrol points out that it's a, it's a branch practice, that the main practice 
Well, the main practice is the perfection of wisdom. And where is that in the true practices that we have, like the sadhanas? That is in a practice which resembles one of the six dharmas of, of Naropa and Naguma, which is called poa, or transference. So the first thing you do when you practice um, chirrut practice, well, almost the first thing after like a whole bunch of prayers to accumulate merit and things, is, um, is to separate mind from body in a practice that resembles this transference, so-called transference or ejection of consciousness. Because in fact, you're not really uh, meant to be killing yourself as an offering. You're just, you know, your corpse is left and then you are transformed into the form of a usually either the red or black dakini. And uh, that's the main practice, which is a kind of a prajnaparamita practice if you realize it. And I always think of it as, you know, the realization that, well, it's similar to the Shankar practices I mentioned of immortal and infallible, is that if you realize you're not your body, that, you know, then death becomes a sort of irrelevant thing that happens. And, you know, it goes to the very essence of um, realization of the pure awareness. Or at least it's a stepping stone, I would say. Maybe it... You know, visual, as all visualization practices of deity, that's a stepping stone for realizing, you know, for, uh, for undermining the self. You know, if you can stop thinking about self as this body, that's a good start <laughs> to realizing non-self. You know, it's like if you're the deity, deity, if you associate the deity with Buddha and Buddha nature, then, you know, it's definitely a step in the right direction, but still a stepping stone. So then the branch practice is you then turn your attention to the leftover bembo, you know, the, the dead material corpse, and you use it as a way to accumulate merit and develop compassion um, by this elaborate visualization. I think there's so many things that play into it. It's so very interesting. But... Um, so for one thing then, of course, it's dealing with fear a lot. Um, the Tibetans still have very powerful images of uh, charnel grounds in India, but they didn't have charnel grounds in Tibet. There was the sky burial practice, and some, some people have associated that with Chur. Um, Tibetans aren't at all squeamish about the body, I've noticed. Um, at least my like retreat master, he said they didn't even think twice, you know, chopping up a body <clears throat> right in front of you with all the guts and everything is a big deal, you know, cutting it up so that the vultures can have smaller bites. <laughs> but anyway, for us, it's sort of intense, I think. And I think that one, you know, that definitely plays into this weird, whatever it is we have, that squeamishness and fear of bodily mutilation. I mean, I think that's really underneath a lot of our fascination with horror movies and, you know, zombies and things like that is a, is a deep, deep-set fear of, of mutilation. And, and so this is like facing it big time, you know. And um, the descriptions, especially Control, developed a whole lot more, but they, they go quite way back. They go back to, like I said, to Ranjan Dorji and things. Is this like all these different ways to visualize how you're going to prepare the corpse for these various beings that you're going to offer it to, which I always, it's almost like a cookbook. 
you know, it, it is. It's like, okay, you chop, you know, put the bones and stake them in and the skin and you drape it over and then you chop up the, you know, little pieces and then you could put little flags on them and, you know, you could, and some, some of the beings that you're offering it to like it raw, so, you know, don't cook those, but these other ones like a kind of burnt, like burnt, you know, we have, <laughs> or kind of, I don't know, Sushi, I think of sushi a lot. I think of the Japanese that prepare things very, very, like one single bite will be, you know, have five ingredients that are just so beautiful, a little bow that's made out of seaweed. And if you've ever been to Japan, you know, they, they do this thing. And then you have just one bite and it's just so subtle, you know. So it's almost like that, except it's a lot grislier, very grisly, in my opinion. I'm a little, you know, I don't, why, okay, why? You know, I've thought about this a lot. Why? Why do that? And I, I think it's to face one of our worst fears and get over it. Get over identifying self with body. Um, you know, the Prajnaparamita teach, teachings, of course, have, you know, teach this emptiness. This is almost why I think Kongto calls it yenlak or almost as you enhancing practices. Yeah, okay, we heard about emptiness and we heard about non-self non-self of the you know yourself non-self of all phenomena but um but you still kind of you know as you wake up in the morning no matter how much you meditated on majamaka or red books or whatever you wake up and you think this is yourself this thing here you know this is where you draw the line usually i mean people i you know Ken Wilbur talks about the different levels of where you draw the line of self-identification. Some people consider America, you know, their self, you know, the, the big patriots and stuff. That's the self. Some people it's closer in, you know, you're a boulderite. Some people it's like your family or your tribe. You know, I'm Jewish, I'm smart, I'm, you know, whatever. But um, bottom line for almost everybody is this, right here, some reason right here at the skin is where yourself ends usually, and definitely extends to that. But of course, what happens if you have to get your arm amputated and all that? So um, you have to change your idea of self, and a good step is to stop the body one, and, that, and that's a very powerful result of this visual, weird visualization of topping yourself up. Then the other one I think is, dealing with what you might imagine is threatening you. Um, and for Tibetans, and since this is a real Tibetan practice, I don't think we, you know, we don't have to look to India, although there's a few precedents in various sutras about the Buddha offering his body. It was in a, I feel like, a somewhat different context. Um, in, in the Tibetan, you know, culture, demons and different kinds of unseen beings and forces are a kind of fear that uh, they have a lot. So I've done a lot of work with, not a lot of work, but you know, in classes we discuss what is your fear. We've even had people write them down and things. It might be something different than demons or ghosts or something. <clears throat> Although I remember one person kind of saying, uh, oh, I'm not afraid of, you know, those kind of unseen beings. I'm afraid of other people. But, you know, really, have you ever been alone out in the mountains with nobody around, like, all night? I mean, I think we just don't experience fear in those situations much because we don't have the chance. We don't have the good opportunity to. Um, 
I've had that experience, you know, walking, oh, I'm going to go for a hike, and it's like I'm way up in the mountains, it's nighttime, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my God, what am I doing? You know, and I kind of go back home real quick. Um, So I think that's there, but we don't, again, we don't have a chance to experience it. So your fear might be, um, you know, go to go to Rocky Flats and do the practice and get radiated or go to a cancer ward or go, you know, those would be an equivalent practice than going out in the wilderness or going into a, um, into bed, into like the sky burial areas or somewhere like that. So the point is, the point is to, you know, face your fears. There's a bunch of trademarked, uh, words I can't use anymore because Lama Tsultum has trademarked them. But um, facing your fears um, and enhancing them, enhancing your neurosis so that then you can work with it. And I once asked, it was Trungpa Rinpoche again who really helped with that translation, I asked him, so I said, what's the short description of Chut? And he said, enhancing, you know, your neurotic emotions uh, in, in pressing, you know, uh, pushing up against them so that you have to deal with, so you can see them clearly and then deal with them, kind of almost like a desensitization practice. And I said, well, what's the difference in that Chut and Chut, which is, the translation for Dharma in Tibetan, and he said, there, it's the same thing. It's the same thing except for the D. No, I, that's mine, I'm sorry. <laughs> so we add the D, but um, except for that Chud is m- more intensified. It's, it's much more, it's almost like, um, you know what, well, I don't wanna go into there, but like a tool shoot, you know, like a putting it into practice. Did it work? Did your Prajnaparamita emptiness practice understanding and everything, is it going to really work in a situation where like you're, fi- you know, you're facing your worst enemy or your demons or your, you know, whatever you are. So it's kind of a test, you know, and making you deal with it. And not always a good idea. I mean, I don't, I don't personally weigh in on the existence or non-existence of demons you know I was like whatever but I don't see them but people do sometimes and uh, if you haven't had some kind of grounding in recognizing non-self or recognizing emptiness then that might not be good to call them up it might not be your good practice to do yet you know to really face something that extreme um and whether those people are seeing actual not beings or having hallucinations doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter because they're manifestations of the mind in any case and equally scary and dangerous. Um, so that's you know what I think is going on. And the final thing there that I just I do want to put in um, uh, as maybe part of my feminist agenda. I don't know, but. This whole thing is very maternal. Um, Machik, the one mother, I, did, I was joking when I said mother superior, but you could, <laughs> if you did a literal translation of, of Lama, you could call that mother superior, but Machik, the one mother, Yum Chemo, the Prajnaparamita teachings, which are the great mother, the association of wisdom with the feminine, uh, 
and then Matik as a mother, her main disciples were her own children, her actual biological children. Her teachings were mainly towards her own children, um, which I wrote about in the you know introduction. I was like, kind of very cool that like her, you know, her son, her main son Gangba, asks her what, you know, to give teachings, and then she like pops into the sky and she's floating in the air and she's looking like a Dakini and she's telling it, you know, and it's like, Mom, is that you? And she, she actually asks, he actually asks her, what are you? You know, so that's a very interesting exchange and why I enjoyed and wanted to do that book, even though it was actually Kalarimje who, you know, asked me to do it. Um, was because most of the teachings take the form of a conversation with her children. And that's pretty interesting. And also one of her children who's crazy and, and how she deals with, or, you know, not crazy, but like, I'm sure she would have said bipolar if she, or, you know, and uh, how she deals with that and how she works with that and so on. Um, so in feeding demons, you know, there's this, there is this nurturing aspect to it. And of course the offerings aren't only to demons. There's all the, there's six kinds of guests that you invite, you know, you blow the Kongling, the, there's all this paraphernalia and everybody comes and you imagine all the, from, you know, over the hills, hundreds of thousands of beings are coming from far, far away. And they, it even said, you know, they stop what they're doing when they hear the, horn, they go, what's that? You know, and they stop whatever kind of like feeding the chickens or whatever they're doing. And then, and then, they, and then it go, you blow it again and they're like, huh, we, we better start going. And then by the third one, they're like just pouring in and, and then you feed them all with your own body. I mean, I, I find that if that's not motherly, I don't know what is, you know, that's kind of like this giant feast of self-sacrificing mom, you know, who's always in the kitchen cooking, the one that the one I never achieved, but um I do get that image from it even though she's not at all you don't get the impression of Machik that she's sort of stuck in the kitchen. Um in fact, one of the interesting things about her life is that she abandoned her children early on to their father, who was also a reader in a in in a household uh and he took care of them for a while. And then, you know, she had, I guess, one imagines a chance to practice uh, and really, you know, understand. And then later on, they become her, her students, her disciples. So there's endless fascinating things. There's more material probably on Machik than any other single woman in Tibetan history, I would say material and finding more on a daily basis and left a greater legacy than anyone. I mean, um, it always, in, in Tibet, they just think there's basically one good woman and all of these women are incarnations of her, you know. So they'll often say Machik and Yeshit Sogyal and some of the other great women of Tibet are the same incarnation. They don't say that of all the men. It's kind of interesting. But um, Yeshit Sogyal is another amazing person. I call her the Maha Secretary who's probably responsible for the Terma tradition, you know, for the whole why there's if we were to believe the legend, why we have terma as a, an option 
But anyway, still, she didn't leave as much as Machik. Machik is definitely... And then I tried to do this, as I said yesterday, find material on Naguma, but I couldn't find Naguma for sure existing at all, you know, and I get in trouble for calling her the yogi's poster girl. But um, Machik, for sure, there's a lot of material stories that you could piece together. There's a long way to go on research of Machik, even though there's a lot of people who are doing it, and it's uh, quite a popular, she's quite popular. And uh, yeah, so I don't know if I'm, I'm sure I'm missing like huge tracks of good stuff, but I can't, (laughs) I decided just not to prepare for this one. So I can stop there. And you can ask questions if you like. <laughs> thank you. Sasan? Sasan? Yeah, thank you, Sarah. This is fascinating. Oh, and I have coming. two questions okay. to start. And um, I'm actually more interested in the second one. So I'm going to tell you. I just wanted to ask you so we don't forget okay. about the name Shijay to for Oh Dampa yes, Sambi. thank you. Oh good. I did want to talk about that. So thanks for reminding me. So we can hold that as a placeholder. Okay. The one I was really interested in about the chip, so chip practice as we all know it know these it days, and as love you it. say. Yeah. And it, and it is always said to be connected to the Prajnaparamita teachings. Yes. And second turning. Yeah, second turning, Mahayana, yes. not Vajrayana. Yeah. You don't need an Abhisheka to practice it, although they are given. Yes, yeah. At least some teachers will say that in, in, you know, in Jamgun Control's commentary. I think he says it's you know, it's second turning Prajnaparamita. But yeah. when you actually look at the the practice... It's really Vajrayana, yeah. It's very Vajrayana, yeah. and it has a very sophisticated element of this poa. So yeah. I was so I was you know always been wondering what is the connection to Prajnaparamita and then what you said about that the the power transference of consciousness being yes. the maybe the connection to intrigues me so yes yes I'm sure you have more to say but if I could just yeah, ask my ahead. one question is um do you think that or did you find any evidence that that aspect is more present in the teachings of Machik, and that maybe as these teachings got practiced more and more, people started to embellish on other aspects, that is the visualizations of what you do afterwards, after you've done the transference, for various reasons, because they're it's easier, way more fun. They're easier. <laughs> they capture the imagination. Yes. You can run wild. Yeah. It's um, but actually. That core was where you are to start. Um, yes, but and if you, and it maybe has developed into a situation where that has kind of been lost almost. So that so much focus on mm-hmm. the visualization. Uh, so, yeah. So do you see that in any of the textual yeah. analysis? Yeah. 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 Shall I start with that one? Then? So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just as you described, it's exactly what I found in the text. That I mean, I was surprised when I started this. So there's 29 texts in the volume that's coming out. Nickel. Okay. Um, and 29 texts, 29 introductions. 
um, <clears throat> not the most popular ones that you probably all know. So it's kind of interesting. And But so surprised as I went on and on. And I'm a really bad translator because I don't read the whole thing first. I just, I don't know. I uh, it's too boring. I can't do it. Um, so I just kind of dive right in. And I dive right in and I'm doing all these source texts. And it's like, well, where's Chu? Uh, you know, it's not there. It's not there at all. It's Prajnaparamita all the way, you know. And actually, when when the very first started way back at the beginning, before Machik's complete explanation, I remember asking Kempon Sultra Rinpoche, you know, about Chur, and the first thing he said is, second turning. Yeah, second turning. And it's famous for being second turning, because I think once upon a time it was. But um, once people got a hold of this uh, enhancement practice, I think, I really do think of it as a sort of a tool, a test of your ability, your recognition. Um, they went wild, and not not recently. That's a long time ago with Rangjung Dorje and so forth. So, um, you know, this just became a much more interesting practice. And there's many theories about uh, if there was pre-Buddhist, you know, Bun influence. Um, people have correlated the shamanic practices like of Mongolia of self, you know, dismemberment and ancient practices in certain indigenous tribes, you know, of dismemberment with whether those are influenced. I had hoped to figure that out once, but there's almost no way to trace that yet that we've come across, whether that's true or not, whether those practices are so-called shamanic, which I don't like to borrow that word because it's Russian really, but, you know, whatever they were doing there in Tibet. So it could be there's all these other influences, but but also these great Buddhist masters, such as the third Karmapa, just really liked to elaborate on those things. And, you know, they also had visions, you know, they they also uh, had direct, um, for instance, Tantong Gyalpo's, you know, was visionary, and there's a lot of visionary things. And then the Terma traditions, uh, was developed, um, and a lot of people practiced Dujim Lingpa's Tromanamo, which was the original Chur thing I translated with Chakta Rinpoche, with very beautiful uh, total terma, even though they somehow connect to Saraha and stuff that I don't understand, and I tried to ask, and it's like, well, how can you, you can't really have both, but I guess you can, and um, so it just burgeoned into this enormous practice, and I think because it's compelling, and here's another thing I kind of feel strong. I have a lot more to say, actually, I realize when you ask this question. But um, uh, it's, um, it became, it turned into a healing practice. Um, and that's very, very, people really want to be healed a lot, you know, of all their problems. Um, <coughs> Mental disturbances in Tibet are considered uh, coming from demons. So this is a method where any kind of mental issue could be approached. And also then, of course, physical sickness and so on and so forth. Um, I didn't see any evidence in the real early source texts of, of, or what I judged to be the source texts because what's, what's really old and what's said to be older are often different. So this is still my judgment. But um, in fact, it's the opposite of healing. I mean, it's ultimately healing, but you know, throwing yourself to the demons is, is not generally 
you're not in the mode of wanting to be taken care of. You shouldn't be in the mode of like, oh, I haven't, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a grandma now, so you know, I have an owie, can you kiss it? You know, it's not that. It's um, a very sophisticated understanding that by facing the worst of your fears, by not wanting to be healed, by not wanting to, by saying, I'm going to die anyway, I'm going to make the choice of what to do with my death. Unfortunately, some people think that and do commit suicide, but on the one other hand, that's a very brave, courageous thing to say, and, and I quoted some lamas saying that. Are you going to just die totally out of control against your will as a total waste? Or are you going to do something useful with your death? And choose like doing something useful with the fact that your body is a dead bit of matter anyway. So it's not a healing practice. And Ken Bodzolzum himself told me, you know, people who practice cure, they take off their protection cords. You know, these protection cords that the Tibetans give you to protect you. He said, you have to take off the protection cord because you're throwing yourself out into the whatever, you know, worst situations. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of great courage. So that changed big time somewhere along the way. And literally every single Tibetan master that comes to the West teaching cure uh, advertises it as healing. Um, so, so, like I said, ultimately, yes, it's healing, but if you have the attitude that it's healing, you're going into it with the wrong attitude, I think. I mean, it, it's less effective. In fact, if you go in thinking you're going to be healed, you won't be healed. I'm going to go ahead and just say that, even though I don't know if it's true. So, okay. And uh, I could give a long talk, which would be really boring for everybody else, except for you, maybe and Wilson, of what I think the word chut means. Because I found after the one, one and I dare say only benefit of translating similar things, you know, massive amounts of something, is that you finally get a sense of the use of the word after you see it in a thousand different places. And it, it doesn't mean cutting at all, I don't think, originally. And actually, I'll... I'll segue this into the, your question about Shijay. Um, it's given in by many uh, scholars, Tibetan scholars like Jangan Kontrol, as a synonym uh, and a homonym, is that what it's called, of chut as conduct. Sapatapayate cha narucho da chut, which is a common word in the Prajnaparamita that we see the conduct of the bodhisattva or the activities of a bodhisattva, or the idea of conduct as a test of your practice. Um, you know, where you go, okay, sort of post-meditation, did you get any good out of it? Well, you go out then, and, you know, post-meditation is not actually a translation of that word, though it's become very common. It's actually subsequent attainment. So, you know, are you subsequent to your practice, are you getting any benefit from it? Are you putting it into practice? So um, I think that's the original meaning. And, oh, I see I'm talking about it anyway, and I was going to tell you that I'm not going to talk about it. But the other thing is um, it lent itself to the, a Tibetan expression. And please, Padma, so you jump in and correct me. But um, uh, of like tak chupa, to resolve, tak chut. Then they use the spelling the same as chut, you know. 
to cut the rope so that you can never go back. Once you cut a rope, you know, you can't twine all those little things back together again. So that means you're done with that. Um, and much the same, and I'm, believe me, so tempted to use an idiomatic phrase in English when I'm translating this stuff, which is it just doesn't cut it. When something just doesn't cut it, it means it didn't work. It's not working. And, and, and it's used that way. You can find in one sentence that is a noun and a verb. You know, you go to the mountains to practice chur, but you don't chur. You know, you, you go to the mountains to practice chur, but you don't cut it. You actually don't attain resolution. You actually aren't. So it's the activity and behavior of chur. And, it, and uh, also I found the same texts, exact same texts, different editions, where chur in the same sentences exactly will be spelled either way, as conduct or as cutting. And the word that they use when they're talking about cutting up the body is actually tup. You know, it's another word in Tibetan. You, you know, you cut it. You don't ch it, you tup it. <laughs> um, so I'm going to just say about shije what that means, and I'm sorry I just didn't even think to say it in English. I translate it as pacification. Dan Martin translates it as peacemaking, the peacemaker tradition. Uh, and shiwar jepa, to cause or, or to develop peace, quite literally. Um, and in every source, it's said to be from the Heart Sutra, again, Prajnaparamita, perfection of wisdom, uh, that you might be familiar with the Heart Sutra. It's like the most famous ever Buddhist text ever. Uh, and uh, I think it is, because it's done around the world in every language. Um, there was a website called the Heart Sutra website. It was great. You can see Japanese people performing it. And, but anyway, uh, in it, when you get close to the mantra, which is a weird to be a mantra in a you know second turning thing in the first place, but it says the mantra that Shiwar Jepe Ngak, the mantra which causes peace, which brings peace. I meant to call, I was going to call Summer like before this talk to ask her what that phrase was from the, in Sanskrit, because I'm not, I don't know what it is, but um, so it's a mantra which brings peace, and supposedly that's where the name Shije comes from, and the claim, and so the whole title, I'm really sorry I didn't say this before, Dungal Shiwa Jepe Chö, Dampe Chö, so it's the Dharma which brings peace to suffering, or which pacifies suffering or quells suffering. And the claim it makes is that other, and they all make claims, right? <laughs> the other traditions of Dharma pacify suffering ultimately, you know, by causing you to not create negative karma and so on and so forth. But this one, Shije, you know, brings the end of suffering now in this life, right when you practice it. So, but I haven't really figured out the practice yet to figure out if it does that. But anyway, that's the source of the name, supposedly. Uh, I haven't heard Dampa Sanjay yet in his voice, you know, of the few things that have come up by him actually express that. So it might be one of those post-etymological explanations <laughs> that people later come up with an explanation of what it means, you know, and, and notice that it's the same phrase, Shiwarjepa, as in the Heart Sutra. I really don't know. Thank you. Well, I guess we're going to have to wait till your book comes out to answer really the 
this, the first question part of like, so are there techniques um, for realizing Prajnaparamita in those texts? Yeah, I can that, answer that. Is that what, you, what your yeah, question was? I mean, you no, that, no that's like the sort of the next one. Sorry, I know I'm, I'm hogging this, but okay. I'm going um, Not, there's a lot of teachings, what we would say like teachings on Prajnaparamita, explanations of it, but not some specific technique in the sense of a Vajrayana practice, you know, like in the sense of top kepa, you know, or something. No, I didn't find anything like that. Like, here's how to realize mm-hmm. Prajnaparamita, sit down and visualize Yum Chenmo or whatever, nothing like that. But um, that's why I'm positing, I'm, you know, get thinking maybe, and I'm not sure that the Poa thing itself is the technique of recognizing <laughs> wisdom, that that in itself is the one, you know, and that's all you need, except if you don't get it, and then you have to go on and do the rest. But there's no other, uh, those early commentators, uh, such as Ranjan Dorje, didn't, they didn't go have any offering about just sitting down and recognizing, you know, Prajnaparamita, but clearly... I mean, we could look at Machik's example, you know, maybe if you thought about the devil a lot, you would, I don't know. Dark side is definitely, always, as everyone knows, is more interesting than <laughs> the light side, right? Why do we see the heroes, you know, the, what are they called? Action heroes? You know, all those guys, Superman and everybody, they're not very interesting. It's always the, like, dark ones that are interesting. Anyway, I'm off. Any other questions? Oh, yeah. Let's let's have an e. Uh oh. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. That was really wonderful. It was marvelous. I just yeah. wanted to you when you were talking about the chur, the practice of chur that the Tibetans do. Maybe you said this already, and I missed it. But is there evidence that it was practiced like that in India? Uh, not that I've seen, but. I'm really not a, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm just beginning to sort of delve into Indian uh, practices. But no, I mean, the mantra practices and, and yeah. syllable practices I was talking about are e- a lot easier to find. Yeah. So just talking about the relationship between Shijie and Chu. Yeah. Couldn't Shijie be the kind of Indian uh, kind of pre- something that preceded yeah. In India, became sure in Tibet, like I suppose know. it would be possible um, and became sure in the sense of possibly the Yudapun or the indigenous influence. Well, the way they do it, I mean, the way the Shijie was is practiced. No, is but there's nothing in Shijie, at least in the texts. No, no, I'm saying that it becomes like it's also, it's like sort of Pachik becomes Machik. In the, in the, on the other side of the MLA. You know. <laughs> I don't think so. You don't. No, I don't think so. I don't. I just don't see any evidence at all of anything parallel, other than Prajnaparamita. But everything is Prajnaparamita. I mean, every teaching in Tibet, in a way, has a, a core of the perfection of wisdom. So I don't. I don't see something, uh, I mean, 
Dampa, according to, so far, you know, I, I have translated several texts, and one of them is very, very thorough, all the teachings of Shije by Dharma Shri. And uh, it's 130 pages, and it's just like everything that anyone now still knows about it. I haven't translated the empowerments yet, but I did receive them. And I didn't see anything yet on uh, something that even could have magically transformed into church. No. So leads me to believe that there is an influence, uh, a big influence from Tibetan practices, pre-Buddhist Tibetan practices, that um, a way of assimilating the Prajnaparamita in a very Tibetan way. But I really, I, I can't say. And it's gone so far now, a thousand years of being developed in Tibet and termas and everything. Um, I haven't been able to put it back there. And but you're saying there is a, there is a, a kind of link. There's that one link that it says, yeah, and Dampa gave an empowerment to Machik, supposedly, which was an empower, you know, there's this division of the mind empower, how did it go? The Dharma empowerment on the mind and the something else, like the vase empowerment to the body. And Machik experiences the mind. This is the story in her thing. And she, uh, in the middle of the empowerment, she suddenly kind of levitates out and goes out and she's up in a tree, naked. And all the other people in the empowerment with Dampa Sange are like freaked out. She's like, she didn't stay and receive the whole empowerment. She missed out. She's been bad. You know, she didn't. And he says, no, because she really received the Dharma, you know, the um, Dharma empowerment on the mind. And that's the important thing. So that's, a, that's the story, the main important story between of their kind of connection that they have that I've seen yet. Um, of course, later histories like, what's his name, Tuokan, 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 you know, it was written yeah, this big yeah. Galupa guy that wrote the big history of the Chur and Shijie. Of course, he, you know, those things are full of, this is from Dampa Sange and so on, but I actually haven't seen the evidence yet. So I still could, I'm not, I'm not done. I'm definitely not done. I'm dying, I'm, I'm planning a preparation of a text which they say, is the, it's called the uh, uh, Druk, the six pieces. Mm. There, and, uh, I'm plan I read it, I didn't see anything, but I'm planning to prepare it for, for Lama Tsultrim's, um, you know, church conference next summer and translate it and kind of finally figure out, because that's, that's where it all goes to. It says, this is the text that, you know, this is what Dampa, this is from Dampa to Machik. And this is was the that was the you know bridge there. So it could be in there. Yeah, it's just I'm fascinated by this parallel between pa and ma. <laughs> and you know mm -hmm. how in how in some cultures the feminine yeah. is regarded as the kind of chaotic side. Like why, that's why the Greeks were so frightened of the feminine. That's why all men are frightened of it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> and it's almost like the way you're talking about it. It's almost like Cho is the sort of dark side of Shije. So interesting. I suppose we could look at it that way. I mean, I can't textually back it up, but um, 
I suppose, you know, Dampa, he was pretty wild, though. Dampa Sangye was not like Mr. Organized, you know. He, he himself, if the read the one who I, you know, Ronald Ableton, um, he <laughs> talks about wild soaks with Dampa, with everyone running around. And I see no evidence of that, but yet, you know, there is a reputation for him. And he certainly said things that were incomprehensible, very much sort of more Zen, you know, these kind of like ironic statements of like, and you can't, we, well, we, I work with some of my friends here and we read together some of this. Um, and if, what? You know, it's like, what is he saying? And we're, so he was maybe not a great example of the masculine orderliness. Body. Oh yeah, that's a great story. <laughs> that's how the Tibetans explain. This beautiful monk and you know rational and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He stole. He stole. <laughs> Wait, it was the other way around. How did it go? He was Dampa was Kamala Shila. This is how this story is told. Dampa was Kamala, you know, in India. And and there's a quote of him saying, in India I was Kamala Shila, in Tibet I'm Dampa Sangye, in China I'm Bodhidharma. By name, just like these are his three different names. But the story that Tibetans have come up with, he was crossing the border into Tibet one of his trips, and there was, I guess, probably the first trip, because they never saw him as a beautiful monk. And... Um, and unfortunately, this has a lot to do with skin color. But in a, in a, there was um, so as Kamala Shila in his Kamala Shila beautiful body, there's something. It varies. It's either an elephant or a tiger has died, and it's like on the bridge, and it's in the way, and the villagers are terrified, and it's because it's got the ghosts, and no one can move it because it's too huge. And so Kamala Shila uh, slash Damba, you know does transference of consciousness into the corpse and take walks it off, you know, animate, reanimates it and walks it off and gets it out of the way. Meantime, an ugly, dark-skinned, um, you know, yogi sees this beautiful body and decides to do poa into the beautiful Kamalashila body and, and is happy the way he looks now and leaves. And so when um, the former Kamalashila needs to come back and needs a body because a human body, is he doesn't have one anymore, so he has to take that ugly body, the dark one. And so, <laughs> um, so that's the dampa that the Tibetans knew and met. Um, uh, I, I don't know how the Bodhidharma story pans out because since Bodhidharma is you know, earlier, way earlier than Dhammasanya. But Dhammasanya is the same time as Milarepa, and one of the famous, you know, stories is his meeting with Milarepa, and I've trans which I've translated that conversation, very interesting. But um, you could, you know, it's possible, but really there is a story in the Machik's book of why he's called father, which is just because of the son of Machik. Uh, you know, why is Machik called Machik? I mean, her name, she had a name. She, and, th and there's very, there's stories of meeting of the four Machiks. You know, there's other women that have been called Machiks, such as Machik Shama, very f well known, the Shama siblings in the Lamdre lineage, in the Sakya lineage. 
the Shama siblings, which a lot of times people have assumed is uh, brothers, but that machik, a lot of t all the translations confuse the different machiks. So machik, I think, is maybe a respectful term. What do you think? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, is you there might be some modern machiks, are there? No. Okay. Maybe not. So I don't know. But you haven't. No modern machiks. Just using the name machik is not a, a, a respectful term. I mean, I'm always called Am in, in Bhutan. Everyone calls me Am Sarah, for instance. Mother Sarah. Uh, they shorten everything, so it's not Ama. It's too hard to say Ama. So we say Am Sarah as a term of respect, but not machik in Tibet. Okay. Always, Ma is always respect. Yeah. Ama, okay. Yum, also, but not Machik. She was the one. It was very tempting to translate Machik as single mother, but I didn't. I resisted. But yeah, so I mean, it's a nice way to think about it. You should write kind of a kind of a Jungian, you know, analysis of that: the, the light and the dark, the male and the female. I like it. Or I should. I'll steal it from you. So we should. Right. Any other questions? Oh, okay. Well, um, Yum, as a, you know, Yum Chemo became f representative of the Prajnaparamita because. That's the mother of all Buddhas because you, without Prajnaparamita realization, you don't become a Buddha or a Bodhisattva or anything, a Shravaka or anything. So in that, that's how that mother came along. McAndrew. Thank you, Sarah, for today and for your great work on these texts and the lineages. Um, I'd say my pleasure, but I'm not sure that's <laughs> right. Pleasure. <laughs> um, I wanted to uh, ask about the role of self-clinging. Um, it seems that in the, the Great Bundle, there's, and I don't have it with me, but oh, I have this impression that there's a lot of, of uh, description of self-clinging and the, the role of of um, this kind of ignorance of the skin as the edge of ourself kind of a thing and and the the momentum of self-clinging as something that should is cutting um, and I'm wondering if you could just speak on the role of self-clinging I guess as demon as primary demon hmm. and by self-clinging mean clinging to self of yeah. course yes. um, yeah I almost always translate the word as fixation because I feel like it's stronger than okay. just clinging. Yeah, that's a better word. You know, it's like you're really fixed on it. You're fixated. It's obsessive almost. Um, yeah, I mean, that is the bottom line in a way. In And, uh, uh, you know, the four demons of church, which somehow I managed to not to talk about at all. But um, there's four, I mean, it's the four devils that are specifically named by, and by the way, in the Arya Deva text, which is the Indian source supposedly of uh, three of them are named there. So there, you know, there is that connection. Um, Nyam Jeki Dud, which I translate as inflation, 
that word nyemje is uh, given a, a synonym of dakzin, of fixation on self. So that's the real, you know, it said all of the other three, you know, devilish or evil forces. By evil, I mean that <laughs> Mara, it means death of a spiritual path. It really does. It means you're stuck now. You know, if you, if you get afflicted by this devil, your spiritual path is not going to go forward. And they always say that that do the fourth one, is bottom line. You know, that's where all the other ones touch down to is this equivalent. And some people call it, have translated that fourth devil as, as ego clinging or something similar. Um, I figure he, you know, they would have said Dakzin if, you know, if it was that easy. And so I looked a lot for a better, you know, a more, a different term, which I personally think fits really well um, in the way that Nyemje is described. Now, to get really subtle, I don't know if I should go this far, maybe this is too far, but there's this brilliant like description in the Machik's complete explanation of the of the devils, and in particular that one, where uh, this little Tibetan trick, which is very hard to repeat in English, where there's the nyemja and the nyemje and the nyemji, which is a it's a it's a grammar trick, really, and it means the basis of that which is inflated, the inflation itself, and the thing that inflates it. And in this is a very I don't think I probably wasn't successful at translating it, but at a certain level, bottom line ignorance, bottom line clinging, you can't get rid of it because it is awareness. It is Buddha nature. You know, it is the thing, you know, the movement of pure awareness is what caused all the trouble in the first place with confusion of samsara, which is why, some, which is why those things don't really exist. So the discussion gets pretty far out and pretty subtle uh, at that level, um, but I suppose that's where the last vestiges of self-clinging are, you know, there, where you cut the inflation itself, of, but not the inflator, which is awareness, which cannot be removed. <sighs> but it's all above my head. I'm like, I don't know. I'm still back with like, oh, don't hurt my hand. I don't want to <laughs> cut off my finger, you know. Yeah. Questions? They're here. Um, within, um, would you say that is it Chud? Is that how yeah, it? that's uh, good. Within good, the culture, good enough. close enough. Culture of Chud. Um, would you say that compared to other lineages or traditions, there's a greater awareness of spirits and perhaps as external? Well, I don't know that there's more awareness, but there's more. Or attention the, to that? More attention, for sure. Yeah. Lots more. I mean, it is the practice, the way it is currently, as we know it, it is the practice which deals with those unseen beings big time. But, I mean, other practices deal with other kinds of unseen beings, such as deities and, you know, the Buddhas and thousands of Buddhas and millions of them. And that comes from Mahayana way even before. And the visions of Buddhas... Some people say Yogacara comes from like what happens when you're meditating and suddenly you see a Buddha, you know, what do we do with that experience? 
Um, so, but Tibetan, I mean, the Tibetan landscape is animated by all kinds of spirits, good and bad and everything, I think. I mean, I, I, again, I'm look, I'm, everything I know is only a textual analysis, but, um, and Bhutan, where I did actually live for one straight year, yeah, everything has, there's stuff going on all over the place that we don't see big time. And I think that's it, it, it permeated all the practices to some extent. Uh, yeah. Yes. So more with the negative or the Insur demonic kind of well, or beans. Yes, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because it's a practice still so, uh, so radically with self clinging, then therefore uh, the things that threaten the self the most are the focus, I'd say, yeah. But, you know, really all the practices of all Tibetan Buddhism is dealing with clinging to the self. I mean, that's Buddhism. Kind of. Clinging to the, not just our self here, but, you know, the intrinsic existence of everything. Uh, Did you look like... No, but behind you? No? Okay. Kind of continuing on with this like Tibetan Buddhist demonology discussion thing. Sure. Um, I've got a quote in here from Patrul Rinpoche saying like, you know, the Chirpas of his time were all these kind of people running around, you know, saying, look, there's a ghost, there's a demon. Oh, I've got it. I've killed it. You know, this kind of thing. Kind of. And he's like, you know, oh, God, shut up. Yeah, um, that sounds like Patrul <laughs> <clears throat> But at the same time you have these other practices that will deal with things like, you know, um, nagas. Um, one I'm thinking of specifically is sort of like a sutra that's been translated recently. Uh, it's kind of, I think it was so, supposed to be like an apology to the nagas for the effects of fracking in America, you know? So... Uh, I want that. Where did you... I'll, I'll, I'll okay, get it to yeah. you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's yeah. like, and in shit, you know, in in... The way we conceive of it in the West, a lot of times people err on one of two sides. Either there are demons, there are like, you know, demon, demon, right. demons, or, oh, these are just symbolic for the ego. This is symbolic of the right. symbolic. Right, right, right. Um, it's only in your mind. Yeah, yes. only in your mind. Like, well, you know, okay. Yes. Um, so, in translating these demons, you know, you kind of touched on that and said whether or not, you know, people see these things or not. I'm, you said it's neither here nor there, essentially, but... Um, no, I said I don't take a stand. That, yeah, yeah. Yes, because yeah. I don't see them. Right. Um, I don't know. I guess in other cases besides Chit, what if, you know, where it seems like maybe they're more... It's supposed to be a lot more tangible... You know, like something that's living out in a hill yeah. or a mountain or something. How, yes. how have you treated that or how do you still treat Yeah, that? that's a really good question. Um, while I was translating Machi's Complete Explanation, I was always teaching at the same time at Naropa. And so, of course, I like to talk about what I'm doing with people. And I'd always do a survey in the class, you know, like this size people. We could do it right now, actually. But And I would ask people, you know, do you see demons or spirits or anything and there'd always be somebody who does 
And so what do you tell, you know, what do you do? I mean, you think that, no, we don't have that in our culture, but, you know, we do. And and in older cultures, as I mentioned in this book, um, it was absolutely accepted in almost all cultures that there were demons and spirits and angels and you know this goes back to the earliest beginnings of and there's theories like the bike the breakdown of the bicameral mind and you know this kind of weird stuff that you read about why that is you know and we've gotten into the scientific age where it's all explained psychologically or you know as some chemical thing or something and I really don't know but here's one thing I noticed with you know you can't ignore it because then in every group this big, there's someone you're ignoring, you know, so you you can't just dismiss it. You can't. And um, and I remember asking Kala Rinpoche about it ages and ages ago, and he said, totally straight, he said, I said, are there really demons? And he said, I don't know about America, but there are in Tibet. <laughs> you know, like he'd seen them, but he hadn't seen them in you know, America, so he wasn't going to say so, I mean, I really, um, one thing I really got the sense of after translating Machi's complete explanation is how seamless her, if it was her, I mean, it was written hundreds of years later, but her kind of experience of that very issue was. I mean, with, a, with no break, she could go into basically saying, well, it's this, you know, demon of ego clinging, and there's no such thing, and if there's good ones and bad ones, and you should recognize your own mind, and yada, 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 and oh, by the way, they wear blue, and they have hats, and the kind of hats they have is this kind, but these other demons, they have that kind of hat, and then you should all know that they're all empty. You know, and it was just like back and forth between these elaborate explanations of what they look like, and how they behave, and what are the signs, and in the dreams, what do you see when you, you know, are afflicted by demons and so on, and to these very profound Prajnaparamita-style, like, you know, explanations. Um, she never says they don't exist, ever. Uh, on, and in fact, she goes through lists of different kinds of demons, and some of them she explains as, you'll, you'll, you can't get rid of that one. You know, that one is there. Um, and so I feel like we should have that attitude. That's my takeaway from translating that book, is that you just shouldn't be so solid about it is or it isn't, right? I guess I should have known that beforehand, but it was something about the process of the detail of like, do I really have to spend three pages describing, you know, what kind of kitchen instruments they're carrying? Some of them have spools, you know, things I don't know what they are, you know. Gene Smith sent me a whole text on hats, Tibetan hats, so that I could identify the hats, um, which are very, by the way, important in Tibet because it's a different, what hat you wear says something about you, you know. But um, uh, I just kind of am like, well, fine, whatever, you know. Uh, the thing I know for sure I'd say is that we all have demons. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you perceive them out there or in there or in somebody else, which is most often the case, right? So speaking of tulshuk or enhancement practice, it occurred to me that marriage is a tulshuk, <laughs> right? It's just as radical as, I'm not married, by the way, that's why, but um, <laughs> radical way of dealing with your neurotic emotions where you can't avoid it. It's just like the hordes of demons 
It's very striking to see the difference in the Buddhist attitude to demons as compared with uh, what you see in the West, in the mm. Judeo-Christian tradition, mm. which is the kind of thing you see, it's sort of presupposed when you see a lot of horror films, where oh, the yeah. demon That's is right. you know, something extremely... Negative. Yeah, and has to be sh uh, chased away, has to right. be exorcised yes. and destroyed. Whereas magic is actually feeding them. Right. <laughs> yeah, inviting them. You call yeah. them from afar. Yeah. You know, like, not just the ones you have. Yeah. You want all of them. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Another story I like, not magic, is Milarepa with the, the saucer-eyed demons. And, uh, you know, he banishes them and this and that. But in the end, he ends up having tea and cake with them. Or tea and nettles, maybe. But... Um, <laughs> You know, it's like, I think there's something to be said about that. Um, the movie world of demons is interesting because sometimes they're very, very compelling. I mean, I think Tr True Blood is one of the most popular series ever made of the, all those demonic kind of, you know, vampires and everything. And I personally find, you know, the Dracula, you know, a very compelling person. <laughs> Any more questions? Ending on that note. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Thanks for your good questions. And I'll see you maybe this evening. Um, you might not recognize, but the... Uh, Two that are left, Jorduk is basically the Kala Chakra completion phase practices. So it is not like some obscure um, thing. But I'm not going to talk very much because it's like too huge. Uh, and then the other one is obscure, the Urgyempa. Um, but I'll, I'll mention a few things before I let Lama Tempa take it away. I'm sure that's why you'll all come to see Lama Tempa. Okay, thank you.